what you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes You might find Welcome, everybody. I'm John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. You'll find us here on PRN.FM, Mondays at 10 a.m. on Visionaries. We talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality, and about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos. And along the way, we talk to some really interesting people, but not today. Today, I'm going to practice a little bit of Freeform Radio. So <laughs> Freeform Radio is really unstructured, like who knows what I'm going to talk about. So I am going to talk about architecture and design, past and future. That's our general theme. And before I get to that, because we're Freeform, I'm in the middle of reading an article in yesterday's Sunday's New York Times Magazine section called The Great AI Awakening, How Google Used Artificial Intelligence to Transform Google Translate. And this is really fascinating stuff. I mean, we're really in the middle of stuff happening. I'm the biggest skeptic about artificial intelligence. You know, it's like, are you kidding? <laughs> and I, I read all the books from the 1950s on, followed the field, and there was one point when they were claiming that if you take your calculator and you push 2 plus 2 equals, it understood <laughs> and told you that 2 plus 2 is 4. Therefore, it exhibited artificial intelligence and a little bit more development and you'll be chatting with it. Well, it didn't happen, right? Because they didn't know what they were talking about. But in the past... Now, just really two or three years, huge strides have been made. So look that article up. You can get it online if you don't have the magazine section lying around. And it begins with describing some passages being translated, you know, two months ago by Google Translate. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with it, if you get a, you encounter something on a website and it's in French or Spanish or Portuguese or some language you're not familiar with, you just copy it, paste it into Google Translate, and it'll give it to you in English or any other language. And <laughs> what you get up till two months ago reminded one of a very famous uh, uh, little humor piece by Mark Twain in which someone had translated one of Mark Twain's short stories into French. So he then translated it back into English, and it was totally gibberish. Uh, and he was uh, picking on the French translator, who had done a rather poor job in, in the translation from English to French. So that's what it read like. Um, actually, I work with someone who's from another country, and they use Google Translate all the time. So I'll get an email from them, and I'll, oh, they put this in Google Translate. That's what happened. And so now, just, you know, just in the past couple months, it's actually literature, what this thing can produce. So how'd they do that? Which leads to a thought about, think about how we, we know about 
other fields. You know, it's like we have a sense of how is Scorsese different as a director from somebody else going back to my day? You know, what was the difference between Antonioni, Fellini, and Godard and, and Bergman? And so we'd watch their movies. We'd have an understanding of the direct, directorial approach. Or we'll look at an actor. And some actors can play a variety of roles. Think of Helen Mirren. Some actors like John Wayne, they're always playing John Wayne. So we're aware of those different styles. And we might know people who are actors. We might have spent a little bit of time at Actors Studio. And so we know about these techniques. You know how this works. Same way about art, politics, artists, designers. We all know, oh, you know, Dyson's vacuum cleaner with the big ball and <clears throat> his new fans. And we wonder, how does that work and why do you need to pay that much for a fan? But here we have computer programming, which is like immensely important. And it's done by computer programmers. Well, who are they? And what are their different styles? And who are the superstars? We don't know. So this article gives us some insight into that field and who these people are and what they're doing. So more about that in some future show. It's just on my mind. I'm reading this article. And I can't tell you how it comes out because I'm a really slow reader. Uh, some people... You know, if you're a fast reader, you read that article in 20 to 40 minutes. It's going to take me a week because I read part of it and then I think about it for an hour, you know, play some solitaire, then go back to reading it. So that's my style. But anyway, <clears throat> today I want to talk about architecture and design, past and future. And one of the things, past and future, lead me to think about that is just uh, a few weeks ago, in the same week, I did two very interesting things. One is I attended a series of events at the Museum of Modern Art and then in Philadelphia at the Art Museum and at the University of Pennsylvania, celebrating the 50th anniversary of a book, Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture. Go into that in a minute. And the same week... I was on a plane off to San Francisco for a general electric conference called Minds and Machines about how General Electric is reformulating itself as a digital industrial company. And Jeff Immelt, the CEO of GE, has announced that within Four years, GE will be the third largest digital company. I guess that's maybe after uh, Microsoft and uh, Google. But <clears throat> they're hiring tens of thousands of programmers. And what are they doing? And how does this affect design? And so that's our future. And our past is uh, the book Complexity and Contradiction, which I'll tell you more about in a minute. But all this came to mind, you know, the, the contrast of these two things came to mind because it then happened to me um, about 12 years ago. In 2004, I again attended two events uh, that reflected on each other in the field of architecture. 
One was a conference called Non-Standard Praxis at MIT. And the other was a memorial for my dean, the dean of the School of Architecture at University of Pennsylvania when I was a student there, G. Holmes Perkins, one of the great educators and uh, most interesting figures of the second half of the 20th century. And Perkins was uh, died a, just about a week before his 100th birthday. So he was this really fascinating figure. And I sort of thought about these two these two contrasting events. The MIT event was young architects, mostly young architects, <coughs> who were using computers. And I noted in that little article that I wrote that I'm looking at right now, that I wrote 12 years ago, and some of the titles of the presentations included performativity, Topologies, virtual standardization, amorphous space, hyperbody research, immaterial limits, effective space, algorithmic flares, the digital surround, the boundaries of an event space interation. What's an interation? <laughs> What's an event space? Bidirectional design processes and Vorxel, V-O-X-E-L, space. So a lot of jargon there. And I sort of, you know, these are young people working on their, a lot of them, their PhDs. Somehow in architecture, you know, you need a PhD. Frank Lloyd Wright didn't even go to college. He did. He didn't graduate. He didn't finish high school. He did one incomplete year in engineering school and went on to be a rather important architect without school. So, but now you need a PhD. So I'm a little envious because I don't have a PhD. They, they weren't doing PhDs when I, was, when I graduated. I looked into it, but there are only about 50 people with PhDs in architecture in the 60s. So it wasn't really needed. But a lot of the architecture at this event was generated with 3D animation software. The architecture sort of got into computers by borrowing the software from the movie industry. And so they were all using these software packages that would allow this kind of very flexible manipulation of form in the computer. And <laughs> the technical term for what they were doing at the time was called blob architecture. It started at uh, Columbia University where the then dean, and I'm going to try to remember his name right now, anyway, bought a half a dozen Iris Indigo workstations. That was in the days when desktop computers were not really powerful enough for heavy graphics and you needed a workstation. And Iris Indigo um, was the was the machine to get it's what was used in Hollywood and it could you could make these things of infinite complexity imagine imagine a giant soap bubble that's wafting through the air taking on totally weird shapes 
And so that's what the students were designing with no hope of ever being able to build that thing. Uh, there were actually some attempts at building it, <laughs> those, that kind of shapes, and they're pretty horrible. But uh, fortunately, <laughs> the field has gotten over it. So that was going on. And what struck me was uh, favorably was the adventurousness of this, these young architects and their plunging into the, these new technologies and having a great time thinking about the impacts of computers. But as I said, the same week, I went to a memorial for G. Holmes Perkins, my dean. And Perkins had been the chair, uh, pardon the inside baseball here. <laughs> We're going to really find out some stuff about architecture. Um, and, you know, we, all, we know inside Hollywood, right? We, we know who, who the, and we know inside baseball, we know what players getting a contract to go to a different team. And, but here we have something like architecture. We walk around the city. It's all around us. And we know a lot less about it. So in this show, you'll learn a little bit about it. So University of Pennsylvania in the 1920s, to get a little architecture history here, was the best school. And you could objectively say that because that was the days of the Beaux-Arts. Beaux-Arts is the kind of architecture we see at Penn St the old Penn Station, Grand Central Station, the 42nd Street Library, Metropolitan Museum. It's got columns and domes. So that's Beaux-Arts architecture. And <clears throat> the architects who did that typically studied at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris in the uh, late 18, early 1900s. And then in the 1920s, one of the great Beaux-Arts teachers came from France to the United States, and he was the chief critic at the University of Pennsylvania, Paul uh, Cray, Paul-Philippe Cray, C-R-E-T. And he's kind of prominent in our minds because one of his students was Louis Kahn. Louis Kahn was, next to Frank Lloyd Wright, the most important American architect. I did a book about him. It's called Between Silence and Light. You can find it on Amazon. So Cray's students at Penn won. Well, in those days, the best projects were sent to New York for a competition from all the schools. And Penn won more medals in the competition. So that's why it was the best school. But anyway, we get to, you know, 1950, and it's still a Beaux-Arts school. And the other schools had, as they said, gone modern. Uh, in the 1930s, Harvard went modern when they brought over Walter Gropius, founder of the Bauhaus, to be the dean there. And so my dean, Perkins, was chair. Actually, no, Gropius wasn't the dean. He was the chair of, arch, of, of architecture. And my dean, uh, Perkins, was the chair, young man then, was the chair of city planning. He was an architect, but he was chair of city planning at Harvard. So Penn brought him to University of Pennsylvania to become the dean of architecture, and he had to totally build a new school. So I got there in 59, and he had pretty much put his new school in place. So I benefited from that incredible education. And to reflect on how old I am, <laughs> last year we had our 50th 
reunion, or our 50-year reunion. It was our first reunion <laughs> of my architecture class, uh, and we had been out for 50 years. One-third th <laughs> one of my class wasn't there. They weren't alive. Actually, one-third was there. One-third couldn't make it, and one-third are no longer with us. So it shows what it's like getting older. You might recall a few weeks ago I had on a colleague of mine on the show, Bill Catavalos, one of the really exciting designers of our time. And Bill is a really far-out thinker. He's on our faculty at Pratt. And, but he's 92 years old, so everybody he knew is dead. And so, you know, what's it like to be in a world where you don't, you know... So I try to keep up. That's why I went to that GE conference uh, a few weeks ago in San Francisco and why I went to the non-standard practice conference 12 years ago already at MIT. I keep up on this stuff so that uh, I'll sort of be in touch with what's going on. Now, I described these weird ideas and these students today doing what we call technically blob architecture. And we talk about the failure of modern architecture. It's one of the things we're aware of. You know, we really got tired of those glass boxes in the 1960s. But there was a lot that modern architecture did do uh, very well. And my Dean Perkins uh, really represented the best of it. And that is <coughs> uh, a civic a notion of a civic responsibility, a caring for the lives of the people in the buildings, a sense of making community, and a kind of a holistic vision of the city, its historical depth, the human interrelationships among people, the creation of community, and how the modern architects were focused on that as one of their foci. They also weren't always focused on that. But at its best, it was. And that was very much brought home to us in my education as it was put together by Perkins. So here we have this contrast of the modern architecture of the post-war era from the 40s through the 60s. Yes, giving us a lot of sterile glass boxes, but at the same time, having these communities of concern uh, sort of talk about how that contrasted with this this modern stuff in a minute, but hey, it looks like it's time to take a break and we'll be back in a few minutes. This is PRN, the Progressive Radio Network. Hi, everybody. I am Karen Hartglass, the host of It's All About Food. Join me every Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time or catch all of my shows in the archives. You can find my archive programs at the Progressive Radio Network website or you can call my personal archive phone number to hear the most recent five episodes of It's All About Food. Here's the number. 1-701-719-0885. Here it is again. one 
Learn about how we can solve many of the world's problems today and do it deliciously here on It's All About Food. Hi, I'm David Crow, host of The Infectious Myth that airs at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time here on PRN. I use data to deconstruct the myths that infect the modern world. Myths within health and medicine, other areas of science, the justice system, society, media, censorship, and politics. Join me for challenging interviews and discussions. Listen live, as a podcast, or by dialing 701-719-0990. Thanks for listening. Hey, welcome back. So this is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. We're on every Monday, 10 a.m. Well, 10 a.m. if you're in the East Coast of the United States. We're totally global these days. I have to get used to that, right? So there are people listening all over the world. And we're no longer limited by the reach of uh, the reach of a broadcast tower, but we we extend everywhere. So 10 a.m. New York time or East Coast United States time. And if that doesn't work for you, <laughs> if that's the middle of the night or something like that, uh, go to visionaries.podbean, B-E-A-N, Dot com, and you can find our past shows. So this show will be up if you want to uh, in a couple of days. If you want to refer any friends to it, it will be uh, totally findable. And uh, all of our other past shows are there as well. I'll sort of run through some of them later. But I'm talking about architecture past and present and in 2004, I attended these two very contrasting events. One was the uh, memorial for my the dean when I was a student, G. Holmes Perkins, who died just a couple of weeks short of his 100th birthday, and was a great humanist, modernist architect who uh, created an education that led us to understand the broad human social responsibilities of architecture and contrasted that with what was going on at that time. We were in the midst of something sometimes called blob architecture. So students had discovered the Iris Indigo uh, computer. Now you can do what it could do on your desktop. But then it was... Um, it was you needed a, a workstation, and they were kind of expensive, maybe 20000 bucks. And But then you, the Hollywood used those, and you could produce these weird shapes. And the students sort of got off on a tangent with these weird shapes, but what, what, what are they for other than to show off what you could do with the software? So just last month, I had uh, – there was a, a book – that was written just as I was graduating school by an architect named Robert Venturi. 
So Venturi is a very important figure. He's now in his 90s and uh, uh, could not make it to the event. But in around 1966, he wrote a book called Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture. And it was an attack on modern architecture. And he called it Complexity and Contradiction to contrast with modern architecture, which might be described as simple and direct. So complex instead of simple and contradictory instead of direct. And so in modern architecture, we were taught that the building should be honest. If it's got big spaces on the first floor and small spaces on the second floor, the windows should reflect that. It should tell us what it is and what it's doing. Bob, Bob Venturi says, why? <laughs> what do you mean honest? What does honesty have to do with architecture? This is not banking. This is aesthetics. So the, it was a beautiful little book based on a, his course that he taught at Penn that I was uh, fortunate to take. And this was the book was published by the Museum of Art, Modern Art, and it launched the whole field of what we now call postmodernism, which is already itself probably past. Actually, I'm giving a talk about that uh, coming up in a couple months. I'll tell you more about it in the future. But once a year, I lecture at something called Art Is, used to be in Naples, Florida, used to be called the Naples Philharmonic. And I'm doing, in March, I'm doing a couple lectures on the rise of modern architecture and the fall of modern architecture. So, we'll be, you know, I'll be talking about that then, but more about that in the future. So Bob wrote this book, and it told at the same time, the same, uh, around the same year, within a year or two, he did a house for his mother. It's called Venturi's Mother's House, uh, now sometimes called the Vanna Venturi House is his, his mother's name, but we knew it as uh, Venturi's mother's house. And so you're a young architect, and <laughs> that's the commissions you get, you know, like something for your mother or your or your uncle. And so I was down in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago, and we did a tour of the house, and uh, we had uh, two days, three days of presentations at the Museum of Modern Art here in New York, and then at the uh, Art Museum and in Philadelphia. And Venturi's wife, Denise Scott Brown, uh, was able to come and speak with us. And for some of us, it was quite exciting because Denise was uh, our teacher, one of our teachers when we were students at Penn. And Denise is also Bob's partner in the firm, so it was Venturi Scott Brown. Denise is an interesting figure. She had grown up in Rhodesia in South Africa and uh, wanted to get out of there, went to England to study architecture, got married. And in England, she met the people who were beginning to challenge the sterility of modern architecture, and they all told her, you, you need to go to Philadelphia and study with Louis Kahn. So she did, and she took on a dual master's degree in architecture and city planning. 
And while she was doing that, she was also teaching. So she was my teacher. And um, so here was this young woman who <laughs> she remembers me to this day because I gave her a hard time. I was a bit difficult student, but uh, she remembers me fondly and even credits me with her design approach. She had done a, a plaza at the University of Pennsylvania, and she said, oh, when she was speaking just a couple of weeks ago, oh, John Lobel, yes, I remember you. I remember you sitting outside the student union, cross-legged, uh, with a sketch pad, and when I designed the plaza, I wanted to make it a place where people would sit and, like, I remember you sitting there. So that was very that was very flattering. I've had my impact on the <laughs> on the design of the campus. So, in complexity and contradiction, uh, Bob said, "Life is not simple and direct. Life is complex and contradictory, and our architecture is a reflection." Uh, should be a reflection of life. It therefore should be complex and contradictory. Something like a wall has to do two jobs. It has to be a wall for the room inside, but from outside it's a wall, a wall for the street. And so th these are two maybe very different jobs that the wall is being called on, called on to do. So... Um, I was, I'll get to what went on at General Electric in a minute, but I got to recall the education I had at Penn, and we got a totally classic modern education. Several of my professors had studied with Walter Gropius at Harvard. That was sort of the orthodoxy of the day that you designed from a program, that your architecture should be functional. And as I said, Gropius had um, founded the Bauhaus and then <clears throat> went on to become chair of architecture at Harvard. And as I said, some of my professors had studied there. And so I had the, that classic part of the education. There's a little bit of the aura of the Beaux-Arts uh, still hanging around the school. And so I sort of picked up some of that. And then Postmodernism, which is a major philosophical movement as well as something in architecture, we associate it with the French philosophers. We're going to do a show uh, coming up uh, shortly on uh, Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze, and the other French uh, postmodernist philosophers. So there's a little bit of influence between that and the postmodernists in architecture. And <clears throat> so Bob was one of the key uh, launchers of Bob Venturi of postmodern in, in architecture. But in his book, Complexity and Contradiction, he talks about, when he talks about pop, he's referring to Jasper Johns or Rauschenberg. But uh, when Denise, who later became his wife and partner, talked about pop, pop she was talking about Ed Rouché and gas stations in Los Angeles. And then the discovery of Las Vegas. So Las Vegas got discovered in the late 60s by uh, Tom Wolfe and by Bob and Denise and a fellow classmate of mine, Steve Eisenhower. 
And uh, Bob Venturi, Denise Scott Brown, and Steve Eisenhower did a book called Learning from Las Vegas. So like contradiction, like complexity and contradiction in architecture, Learning from Las Vegas is still in print, very influential, incredibly insightful. They reintroduced to architects Levittown, A&P, shopping markets, malls, Las Vegas, uh, all the stuff that we had dismissed as Los Angeles, <laughs> we had dismissed as stupid and irrelevant and we shouldn't pay any attention. And so starting with starting with Tom Wolf started writing about you know this pop culture about Las Vegas. And then Bob and Denise and Steve Eisenhower do this book, Learning from Las Vegas. So I would never have occurred to me to go to Las Vegas for any reason whatsoever. And suddenly I had to go. So I, you know, one time I'm doing something in California and it didn't cost anything extra to have to go from instead of L.A. to New York, go L.A. to Las Vegas and then Las Vegas to New York. So, <laughs> you know, I stopped with a five hour layover, ended up getting home at three in the morning. But, you know, my because I couldn't afford a hotel, I was uh, uh, so just laid over, took a taxi to you know, downtown, walked around, said, wow. <laughs> and then uh, then uh, got the next plane home. So that was how I discovered Las Vegas and how it got introduced to us by my teacher, Denise Scott Brown. So uh, again, Bob and Denise came, came with a, a broad, a, a kind of humanism to architecture. The house that Venturi did for his mother looks like a house. Well, it looks like a mannerist house. It looks like a weird house. But it has a sloped roof. It didn't have a flat roof. It has a distinct chimney. It has windows with panes of glass. And so, you know, it's a housey house. And when you're supposed to be making a flat roof house like Le Corbusier's Phil Savoie, at least that's what we were taught in school. So here's Bob reintroducing uh, aspects of a traditional architecture. And so there's this humanist quality that I had in my education. Now, the same week that we had this celebration of the 50th anniversary of complexity and contradiction, I got on a plane and went to San Francisco for General Electric's Mines and Machines. So uh, going back a bit, I was thinking about leadership, uh, where I teach Pratt Institute. We're getting a new president. And we've had a great president. He's been there over 20 years. And it's, he's retiring. And so now, big search on. And it's a very trying experience, uh, trying to get a new president, because you've got to get the right person, you know, with all the right leadership qualities. He has to be a great fundraiser. He has to unite the, the um the academic community. He's got to be able to relate to and work with the physical neighborhood around the school. He's got to be able to see into the future and lead the school into whatever the future holds for us. So how do you get the right person? And then he's got to be someone everybody gets along with, and he gets along with everybody. So fortunately, I'm not on the search committee. 
So I can kibitz, but, uh, you know, it's someone else's responsibility. But I was thinking about leadership in, in terms of this issue. So I reread Jack Welsh's book, uh, Jack, Straight from the Gut. And Jack Welsh was the CEO of, of uh, General Electric until, I'm not sure exactly, maybe 10 years ago, he stepped down and Jeff Immelt took over. So Jack Welsh was regarded as the greatest CEO of the 20th century. I guess that would mean all time because I think CEOs are a 20th century phenomena. And But then um, Steve Jobs happened. So now it's between the two of them. Who's the, who's the best, uh, the greatest CEO? But Jack Walsh was a great corporate leader. And uh, how did he transform GE? What was his, how do you develop leaders? How do you run an organization. So, you know, I reread that because we're in the midst of that. And then I thought, well, what's what's it like now? And and what what was he chose Jeff Immelt to be his successor. Amazing story. Um, if you ever read Jack straight from the gut, it ends with how he picked his successor, he with the board. And they narrowed it down to four candidates. Each candidate was brought into corporate headquarters and given major projects to run for a year. And they just watched them to see their leadership qualities and things, you know, that happened. Like Jack Walsh early in his career was put in charge of a new plastic, I think Lucite or something like that. And so he had to build the factory that was going to make it. And so he's out, uh, he's out looking at the foundations being put in for the new factory. And he, uh, he comes back and he gets this phone call. He says, uh, the samples are turning yellow. <laughs> There's a career ender. Well, he didn't create it. You know, he was put, he was given this once it had been created, but the chemistry was flawed. And so you got to fix it. And he's a chemical engineer. He had to, uh, you know, lead the process of getting this stuff right finding out why it was turning yellow and get it fixed before this was, you know, one of their major products. Gee, not in plastics anymore, but it was a big division at the time. So how are these guys going to react to crises like that? And at the end, they picked one, Jeff Immelt. The other three had to be fired. They could not stay on. It was like when there's a new king, they has, he has to execute all the other contenders. And But it wasn't so bad because they all went on to be CEOs of other major corporations because GE does such a great job of growing leadership. They don't go out and look for, you know, where's somebody and we give him a boatload of money to come to us. They, have, they grow leadership so that they can uh, pick the people they need to do what they need to do. So how has Jeff Omel been working out? So I, when you have a question like that, what you do is you put the name into <clears throat> YouTube, and look at some lectures by him. Look, I hadn't, who is this guy? I'd never heard him speak. So I started listening to the speeches, and they're all coming from something called Minds and Machines. So I find out, for the past five years, General Electric has been having a big conference called Minds and Machines, mostly in France. So I said, hmm. So 
the lectures are all on YouTube. So I start listening to them. They're mind-blowing. So I'll tell you what they're doing in a moment, but these incredible lectures. And it totally international leadership. And I say, this, this is the, uh, <laughs> the conference I went to in San Francisco. And he says, uh, now this is the assistant CEO. And this woman comes out in a motorcycle jacket. <laughs> there are people from India. There are people from Africa. Uh, there are people from all over the world, men and women. Um, and they're all you know, heads of major divisions of either General Electric or General Electric suppliers or their customers. They're all speaking. So I'm listening to these uh, uh, talks, and then I discover that, oh, my God, the conference for 2016 is coming up in a couple of weeks, and it's in San Francisco. So I went. So why did I go? So you might have noticed on TV that General Electric has been billing itself as a digital industrial company. Digital industrial. So I'm an architect, and... <clears throat> Key to our notion of modern architecture is the Bauhaus. Now, if you are, you, I'm sure you've heard of the Bauhaus. And since you're listening probably online, open up, open up another window, open up Google, and go to Google Image and put in Bauhaus tea kettle or teapot or Bauhaus lamp or Bauhaus chair, and you'll see beautiful stuff, totally modern a hundred years old. And a lot of us have those Cheska chairs to this day. I do. <laughs> My wife said, why don't we get these chairs? I said, well, I used to have the originals, but I gave them away. Said, well, so we got some used ones at a tag sale. And so a lot of what we consider ultra-modern to this day was done a hundred years ago at the Bauhaus or 90 years ago. So but the key thing is you see that Bauhaus tea kettle, that was not made for you to buy. That, the idea of the Bauhaus was to replace handcraft. So earlier, uh, you wanted to buy a tea kettle, tea kettle, a craftsperson would make a tea kettle and you would buy the thing they made. The idea of the Bauhaus was we now have mass production industrialization. So... Basically, the Bauhaus invented industrial design. It existed before, but that's what it was focused on. That they would design things to be mass-produced. So you buy the mass-produced tea kettle, not the one made by the student or professor at the Bauhaus. And so how do you do that? How do you understand that? So the Bauhaus invented the field of basic design. Design, they said... I don't agree, but this is an important movement in modernism. The elements of design are point, move a point, you get a line, move the line, you get a plane, move the plane, you get a solid, and a solid is covered with texture and color. So if you understand point, line, plane, solid, texture, color, you can design anything because everything is made out of that. And then it's made out of materials. So at the Bauhaus, you studied metal, glass, um, fabric, wood. Plastic was just beginning to happen then. They, did, they actually, Mahali Naji used plastic, but it wasn't part of the curriculum. And then the industrial processes. If you 
take a piece of metal and hit it with a, a die to make a round dome of a tea kettle, uh, how much can that metal form before it distorts? And you had to understand that to know what kind of tea kettle to design for to be made in an industrial process. So that's industrial design. That's what the Bauhaus did. Guess what? We're not in that industrial era anymore. We're in a digital industrial era. We are in an era of 3D printing. We're in an era of the Internet of Things. So just a quick digression, 3D printing. I'm sure a lot of you know what it is, but if you're not familiar with it, imagine your inkjet printer. That's a 2D printer. So you, des you design something on the screen. It might be words. You might put a graphic image in there. It's on your screen. You now click print, and a piece of paper goes through there, and the print head deposits a layer of ink that's very thin, um, and it is now reproduced on the paper what was on your screen. Now imagine you did something 3D on a screen, and you had a 3D printer. What that would do is it, it's got a spool of plastic, and it heats it up, melts it, sprays it onto the paper or onto a flat surface, say a thousandth of an inch thick. And then the print head goes back and does it again. And again, after it's done it a thousand times, you have an inch thick piece of plastic there in the shape of what you had on your screen. You typically, you click print and go out to dinner, <laughs> and then you come back. Uh, actually, I used to do that with 2D printing. Uh, I was doing, uh, you know, some big, some big things, you know, 18 inches by 20 inches. My designer had a big printer, and we click print, and we go out for lunch. <laughs> oh, uh, well, the printers are a lot faster today. So anyway... That's 3D printing. You can 3D print in metal because what it does is put down little tiny, little nano beads of titanium or stainless steel and hits them with lasers, melts them, and fuses them. So the print head goes back and forth, putting down these layers of steel or titanium. And after it's done it, you know, a thousand times or 10,000 times, you have a 10 inch part. Now, it's a lot cheaper to hit something with a stamp or pour something in a mold. It's a lot faster. But sometimes you want to make shapes that can't be made any other way. For example, GE has valves that spray um, a gas into a turbine, and you want the gas to come out of the nozzle in a certain way. Imagine it's like a fuel injector in a car. Well, what makes it come out that way is the shape of the space inside the nozzle might be a very curvy, complex shape. How would you make that? There's no way to make it, but you can 3D print it because you just go down in layers and whatever you had on your computer screen in 3D now comes out in the 3D printer. So our industrial processes are changing, and GE is very aware of that. So one of the things that uh, GE means by digital industrial is everything they make has a twin in the cloud. Now, what do they make? 
Um, they no longer make washing machines. They sold that division along with selling plastics. So mainly they make wind turbines, gas turbines, um, diesel electric generators, diesel engined locomotives, and uh, did I say jet engines? And everything they make has a digital twin. So each individual, say, windmill, wind turbine, has a twin in the cloud that is engineeringly uh, parallel to the one that you are, the real one, and they can all talk to each other, all the digital twins. So, you know, the, uh, let's say the main bearing on the, on the windmill starts to overheat, and the digital twin knows that. He says, uh-oh. So it contacts the other digital twins and says, are your main bearings overheating? And they say, yeah. Well, when does that happen? Seems to happen when the wind's going over 55 miles an hour. Oh, um, uh, so what if we change the setting on the clutch so that the mill disengages, when the blades disengage when, when that happens? See if that corrects it. Uh, yeah, it seems to correct. Do we need to tell anybody? No, just put it in the records. We'll, we'll take care of this ourselves. So that's what the digital twins are doing. And this makes an entirely different world. How things are made, how they're controlled, the fact that they continue to uh, control them, uh, you know, forever. Every jet engine that GE has ever, uh, that's still flying, that GE has made, they're following that jet engine. You know, the thousands of planes are in the air right now. They might be over some ocean somewhere. GE knows where it is, what it's doing, what condition it's in, when it's scheduled for um, maintenance. Is there a problem? Uh, should it come in sooner for maintenance? That's all um, continually being done. So from design to manufacturing to following it through its use and maintenance, it's all one continuous, seamless process. We're doing that in architecture now. We're going to be doing it in all of design. And so uh, when we design a building today, it's <clears throat> a whole ongoing process. The software we use in architecture, the same software, the engineer has it, the uh, contractor doing the building has it, the client has it, and the maintenance department has it. So that, as I like to say in one of my classrooms, why is this air conditioner making all this noise? And, you know, I go down to the engineer and say, can you call up this air conditioner and just shut it off? <laughs> and, you know, we can't because no one knows how to set it up. <laughs> but it's th theoretically there in the capability. So, we're in these parallel worlds now of the humanism of, that we used to be focused on on architecture. I'm trying to keep it alive um, in my school and these new technologies. And how do these interface? How are we designing things? How is this world, how is this world changing? You know, as I like to say on this show, because I think it's going to be a biggie, what does it mean when we have driverless Ubers? And just as an example, but think, you know, <laughs> I could just imagine all the apartment buildings in the future having a little balcony 
on the 50th floor where Amazon lands its uh, drone delivery thing. <laughs> Boy, the management of my building is so teed off about the packages. Every day I come in and I kid the doorman. I say, is it Christmas? And it'll be the middle of July. But he's knee-deep in packages that he has to put into the we now have a computerized system in my building. He's got to put it in the computer. It goes up on the screen as I come. I said, where do I stay? He says, he says you're in the top three <laughs> for the most packages. <laughs> I discovered this company in China. If you go to Wish, W-I-S-H.com, it's sort of like Amazon, but it's a tenth the cost. You know, watches are a dollar or two dollars, and the shipping is almost nothing. Um, and they send it by boat from China. So when you order something, it takes a month to come. But, you know, laser pointers, I use laser pointers in my teaching, two dollars. You know, they're four dollars. I'm sorry, forty dollars anywhere else. They're two dollars. Uh, so all this wild stuff. Uh, and so we're in this totally different world. And for the moment, UPS is very busy, but that's all going to get automated. But my point about the Ubers is once those get automated, it changes the way we live. You know, in New York, might not make that much difference. You know, you'll hail an Uber instead of a yellow cab. But in um, L.A., what happens when you don't own a car anymore? You don't need parking spaces all L.A. is half highways and parking lots, half the square footage or square mileage of L.A. is parking lots and roads. What happens when there's a tenth as many cars? Because right now, your car, my car, is in the garage 90-plus percent of the time. It's used 10 percent of the time. And what happens when it's used 90 percent of the time? And you, don't, you only need a tenth as many cars. Uh, you only need a tenth as many roads. You only need a tenth as many parking spaces. How does that change the world? How does that change the way we live? So uh, we're in a world of these changes. The non-standard practice conference at MIT I went to 12 years, wow, 12 years ago. I, some of those people are now my colleagues teaching at Pratt. Uh, those those students getting their PhDs. They're now out in their careers already. And the GE conference that I went to just a couple weeks ago, Minds and Machines, about how they are changing everything about what they do, about how they design. <clears throat> One of the things they're doing, oh, got to recommend, go to the Microsoft Store. If you're in New York, uh, it's Fifth Avenue and 53rd Street. Go to the third floor. But there are Microsoft stores all over. And get the, uh, you can also do it at Best Buy, get the goggles, put the goggles on. And at Microsoft, they have one where you stand in there, you have the over-the-ear headphones, you have the goggles, you're underwater standing on a sunken ship and Coming from the left over your shoulder, a whale goes by. I mean, a really big whale. Totally realistic. You are standing on a water and there's a whale going by. What does this, what does this mean for, you know, how we, uh, the kind of world that we live in? Well, at GE, they've got those goggles. And let's say a technician has to change out a valve 
on a diesel electric generator. Right there in the goggles is the generator. He, he moves his head so it's, or they move their head so it's superimposed on the real one. The goggles then show you the image of the screws coming out. So you get your screwdriver and you unscrew the four screws, take off the manifold, uh, unseat the valve, put in the new valve, but everything you're doing mimics uh, the real image. You can see both images overlapping. The uh, virtual reality one and the real one are overlapping. You mimic the virtual reality one. So it's instructing you in every step of the way. It's a little bit like what we do when, you know, how do you, how do, you do this with your iPhone? And you simply go to YouTube and say, how do I do this with my iPhone? And there's an instructional video. And you look at the video, you look at your iPhone, you do what it does. But now they're superimposed. It's how they're working in factories. They're working in maintenance. Just this incredible stuff going on. So wrapping up, uh, this has been looking at architecture and design, um, past, present, and future. I'm John Lobel. Our show is Visionaries. We're here every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time or East Coast United States time. For the, those of you who are global, for whom that might be the middle of the night, catch us uh, any of all of our past shows are on visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N is nancy.com. You see all our shows. Uh, you can click on them and download them or stream them. And maybe next week I'll run through what some of those were, really terrific, interesting guests from the past. But uh, for today, we'll wrap up. And thank you for joining us.